You're fine. Just go away. (laughs) I'm just kidding. Hey, good morning, everybody. So uh, it's not a big deal, this thing. If you're sitting around thinking about it, it's uh, just a small Achilles thing. And uh, all I got to do is rest it. So it's no big deal. And we'll move on. Hey, I appreciate so much. Uh, hearing from, from Carrie and Lavish Ministry, that is just that's such a wonderful thing. I'm trying to get myself together because I'm over there crying the whole time. And so, um, but I, you know, I just, I just want to say that it, it goes so hand in glove with what we've been talking about over the last month, how it is that Jesus was reaching out to the people that, that were excluded and unseen, uh, even, by, even by those who were the spiritual authorities. Uh, at that time and in that place. And uh, I just, I think it's it's beautiful. So please keep them in your prayers and be open to how uh, you can assist and, and help in, in that ministry because that's it's pretty wonderful. Uh, um, we're going to continue in our study in the Gospel of Luke today. So if you've got a Bible with you or a way of following along, if you'll go to Luke chapter 17, please. We're nearing the end of a long section that we've been involved in. It, it started in chapter 9 and goes all the way through chapter 19, but it is called, what we traditionally call it, is the travel narrative in Luke's gospel. It's unique to his gospel, and it, it, it's the account of Jesus traveling with a group of pil- pilgrims, you know, not American pilgrims, or they don't think of people, but I mean, they're religious pilgrims, uh, Jewish pilgrims moving from Galilee and traveling down to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. They've traveled through Samaria. They've been preaching in villages along the way. And in, in, in this section uh, th- that we're, we've been reading, the travel narrative, we've got the majority of the parables that Jesus told. So this is where Luke records most of those. We've just finished up a subsection in here where Jesus responds to criticism about the way he was so welcoming to those deemed sinners by the religious leaders. And Jesus, through parables and sayings, explained his actions and exposed the folly of, of, of the attitudes and mindsets of his critics. Jesus is, is a ministry of reconciliation. That's something that Paul emphasizes as well in 2 Corinthians 5. And that was in contrast to the, the pious exclusion that had developed among the religious leaders of Jesus's day. And, you know, it struck me that, uh, you know, even as, as I was listening to, to, to Carrie there this morning, that you realize that two chapters out of Luke's gospel were devoted to this idea of seeing to it that we're not excluding those who are deemed sinners or two chapters. I like if, if, if emphasis is determined by quantity, then I would say this seems like pretty important stuff for us to keep in mind, the idea of, of being open to reconciling and reaching out to those who seem to be diminished. He finished all of this off with a parable of the rich man and Lazarus, which we looked at last week, which was a, a warning to the, to the religious elite about their pride of position and power. And his warning was, you know, be sure that things tend to be reversed in God's economy. Today, the narrative is going to transition from those parables and that specific discussion to Jesus' instructions for his disciples that sort of reveal to us what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus, what it looks like in our life, in our attitudes, how it is that we carry ourselves, what it is we do. He's going to instruct and exhort, and he's going to tell a parable 
And there's a common theme that runs through all of this, and that is humility. Humility is actually uh, the core of what he's going to be talking about. He's going to be describing the characteristics that should be embodying his followers. Even though the word humble is never actually mentioned, the only way to achieve what it is that he calls us to is through intentional, uh, the practice of intentional humility, meaning that is something that we choose. We choose to be humble. We choose humility. And you might be thinking, okay, Rob, I'm okay with you know being humble as long as everybody knows how humble I'm being. As long as everybody recognizes when it comes to humility, I'm number one. What Jesus is going to describe is something that becomes, that must become an ongoing practice for us. This isn't something we're going to look at, read today, and ah, we got that figured out, we'll move on. This is an ongoing daily practice. This comes back to Jesus saying, every day we pick up our cross to follow him. Because the patterns and the systems of this broken world do not accommodate this life of following Jesus very well. And we're never... Uh, and, and, you know, I just, we've got to be realistic about it. We are never going to drift into a life that is more tuned to Jesus. That's just not going to happen. We have to choose to do so. We have to be intentional uh, about that. So in this section, Jesus is going to give us uh, instruction on what it's going to look like in real life as we're following him. And humility will end up being the core theme. So if you're there in Luke chapter 17, we're going to start in verse 1. It says, one day Jesus said to his disciples, there will always be temptations to sin, but what sorrow awaits the person who does the tempting? It would be better to be thrown into the sea with a millstone hung around your neck than to cause one of these little ones to fall into sin. Okay, we'll stop there for a second. I'm trying to figure out how this transition occurs here, what even Luke was thinking as he he put this together. It's possible they're mulling over everything that happened in the last section, if it's you know chronological in Luke's account. Uh, maybe they were thinking about how the Pharisees had reacted to the outsiders and the outcasts, and maybe they were thinking about this 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 ministry of reconciliation that Jesus is so clearly embodying, and and. And wondering about this. How does this work? And it's so different from what we've seen from the Pharisees. And so when Jesus is talking here, he talks about these little ones. And we have to be clear we understand about that. When he says little ones in this, he's not talking about literal children. Although certainly they're not excluded from this. Certainly we would be protective of children. But he's he's making a point here. He's talking about God's children. Believers who like children. In, in humble vulnerability have come to Jesus for acceptance, like we saw in the last section, people who were outsiders who were coming to Jesus and Jesus was welcoming them. When he says causes one of these little ones to fall into sin, the wording is a little odd in that the, the, the word that he uses for sin in the Greek is skandalizo. It's where we get the English word scandal. Um, and it means to set a block or an obstacle in someone's path that could cause them to trip up while they're, while they're journeying along, while they're traveling. So basically he's saying here, if someone trips up these humble followers who have become vulnerable because they put their trust in me, be warned. This is what Jesus is saying. Be warned. It's not going to go well for the person who does this to someone who's become vulnerable to, to be a part of my kingdom. And we have to note the pronoun your in this. So it would be better to put a millstone around your uh, neck. It puts this in the context of our responsibilities to each other here. 
it's, it's not so much there. It's not so much all these people that are doing it wrong. He brings it to us, his disciples. And he says, think about this. There, there's, an, there's, a, there's, a, there's a responsibility that each of us has to each other in this. And there's an implied humility of putting the interests of others before ourselves. I, what I think we learn from this, what Jesus is saying here, is that we're going to practice humility when we're careful not to offend each other. This is really, really important for us right now, you guys, just given the cultural climate that we're living in right now. I mean, we know, right? I don't have to sit here and explain to everybody what's going on in social media and some of the attitudes that have been developing and how even Christians are taking up this sort of weird attitude of not caring about how it is that we treat each other as long as our political views are promoted. Jesus is using hyperbole here about a millstone. And he was referring to, you know, those large, you've probably seen pictures of them, those large round stones that would have a, a, a beam going through the middle of it. They'd hitch it up to a donkey and the donkey would pull it around uh, uh, so that it would, uh, the stone would crush against another stone and grind up the wheat. Okay, it's hyperbole because those things are massive. They're huge. They weigh so much. There's no way you're going to put that around somebody's neck. There's no way you're going to get it out to sea, uh, much less. But, but he's trying to make a point about how serious this is. Jesus is protective of those he loves. Don't give the humble ones, the vulnerable ones who follow me, don't give them a hard time. Are you going to answer to me is what he's saying. And he's indicating that the world systems will be bullying and taking advantage and tempting us to sin. But we as fellow believers are warned not to add to that difficulty. Don't add to this. Don't add to the chaos. Don't make it worse, especially for your fellow believer. Jesus uses the same kind of hyperbole he did in the Sermon on the Mount. If you remember the Sermon on the Mount, he talks about things like cutting off hands and plucking out eyes, uh, you know, to, to, as a better alternative than allowing those parts of our bodies to interfere with God's purposes for our fellow believer and, and their life. These are images conveying our direction in life, what it is that we reach for, what we set our sights on. Jesus is blunt. If our mindset is the same as the world's when it comes to how we treat our fellow believer, how we interact with one another, how we view one another, then we can be in serious trouble with God if we're not careful. And see, let's not forget the the context of the previous section. The Pharisees' desire and quest for position and exaltation above others. They, They were out making sure that they were elevated in their positions uh, in places of superiority over those that they deemed inferior to them because of sin. And if we're out doing the same thing, if we're out advancing our own will, uh, no matter what it means to the people around us, if we're out abusing one another, treating one another as objects, for our own sexual gratification, if we're out behaving like the world does, especially towards our fellow believer, I mean, there is no way around this. God doesn't take this lightly. This is serious stuff for us. We can't just 
blow it off. We can't just start saying, oh, well, you know, I, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to get my way this time. I'm tired of being pushed around by the world. I'm tired of these people doing this or that to me. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to make sure everybody knows my opinion. Well, that's, that's fine. That's, that's kind of the mindset of this world right now. But let's counterbalance that with what Jesus is saying here. It's serious. Rob, could we get back to grace, please? Yeah, we will, but, but this is here too. We've got to take it all in. If we treat this community of the church, something that's supposed to be different from the rest of the cultural landscape, if we treat this as just another place to try to get ahead or view the people here as instruments for our own advancement, we are no longer representing God's plans and purposes. We must never use each other as leverage for our own ambitions. But instead, as Paul worded it in Philippians 2.3, be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. Well, that's not easy. No, I know it's not. Let's keep reading. It gets worse. Verse 3. So watch yourselves. If another believer sins, rebuke that person. Then if there's repentance, forgive. Even if that person wrongs you seven times a day and each time turns again and asks forgiveness, you must forgive. (laughs) Should we just close it here and just go home and lick our wounds? No. Again, here, honestly, here we see the perfect balance, right? From from Jesus here. Don't excuse sin. He didn't say that. Don't just just ignore it. Don't just dismiss it as no big deal or, you know, no, this is, this is harmful. This is immoral stuff. And, and given the context, he's talking about someone sinning against us. So, you know, there again, you know, if, if we're talking about hurting us or taking advantage or whatever, and those things happen in life and it can happen here within a church community. So we see this call to humility doesn't mean, oh, well, you know, I don't matter. It doesn't matter what happens to me. Uh, anybody can do what they want. No, that's not it at all. That's how abusive relationships exist. No, he says rebuke that. And sometimes that word, even the sound of that word comes across as mean, doesn't it? Rebuke. It's simply even the way you say it. And so we kind of tend to, you know, shy away from that. Oh, I don't want to rebuke somebody. Listen, rebuke simply means to verbally disapprove of something or some, you know, some behavior or action. To verbally disapprove of that. So, you know, if we're sinned against, verbally communicate to the one sinning that we got a problem here. This is not cool what's happening. This is not helpful. This isn't beneficial. Maybe this is immoral. And notice Jesus says to rebuke the sin of that person. So not go around to everybody else to talk about the sin of that person. I got a prayer request and is it juicy? <laughs> no, the thing here is, is, is acknowledging, confronting, verbally bringing this out in communication. But then the big thing is the next part. And if that person repents, that is recognizes it's a fault and turns from that behavior, begins doing things differently, then Jesus says, forgive that person. So I think we're seeing here that we practice humility when we're willing to extend godly forgiveness. And that's the key, godly forgiveness, right? He's describing humility in love for one another that doesn't keep score, that isn't counting up all of the offenses and keeping them like a rosary bead and going over them. Now, here's the thing. We use a word like forgiveness 
and it's too quick and easy to say, uh, but the word is huge. It's a big word, and it is dense and, and nuanced, and we really have to think about this word. Uh, and it, it's one of those things that as a pastor, I recognize the power of this position of, of saying these things. And so I want to be clear on this and I'm going to qualify this. And you may think I'm going to overqualify it, but I think it's important to qualify a concept like forgiveness. What does it mean to forgive? You know, that's a struggle for many people to, you know, to forgive and, and, and even understanding the concept behind it. And, and a lot of times we're misunderstanding it, uh, and, 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 and a lot of that comes even through a, 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 you know, a cultural lens that we have. We've got a phrase in, in our, in our world that where we say, you know, it's forgive and forget. We say forgive and forget. You know, if we forgive someone, we should forget that the offense ever happened. But we need to understand very clearly forgiveness and forgetting are two separate things, completely separate things. Sometimes the pain of an offense continues to just radiate. Uh, and even if the person wants to forget, the pain's not going to allow it. Have you ever been in pain? Something just grabs your attention, doesn't let go, and you can't think about anything else except what's happening there. Even if you want to, you can't help it. And so sometimes emotional pain like that is exactly the same way. We, we can't make our minds forget something. That's an impossibility. That's an impossible standard that's become a cultural colloquialism that actually creates an undue pressure on us when it comes to this subject of forgiveness. Forgetting goes along with healing. And that's in God's venue. That's his work. And it usually takes time. And it's a lot more about coping, really, than forgetting. Uh, so forgiveness does not demand forgetting. Get that. We need to have that clear in our heads. We can forgive and still remember something that happens, okay? The other thing that we get confused about is that we think that forgiveness is an emotional response. Someone will say, well, I can't forgive. I just don't feel it. I can't, I can't do that. Something that we need to be able to have bubbling up from inside us to be able to do it, but it's really not that. Forgiveness is an act of the will. It's a, a decision we make. I choose to forgive. I don't feel like it. I've told that story so many times. I hope you don't mind. I'm going to tell it again, just real quickly. We're, our, our dear friend Ruth, you remember Ruth? And she had this, this story of, of her early life when she was married to a man who had decided that he actually wanted a, a younger model. And, and so he was trying to decide between his wife and this, and this woman that he wanted to run off with. And she sat patiently waiting, hoping and praying. Finally, he decided, nah, I, I want the new one. And so he left his wife and, and he went off and he married her. And she knew as a believer that she had to forgive him. That was one of those things. It's just there. It's in the scriptures. It's, we're reading about it today. You got to forgive. And she knew she had to forgive. And so she sat down to pray one time and said, Lord, I pray for my ex-husband and his wife. And then she paused and said, but I don't really mean it. <laughs> and that was beautiful to me. When I heard that, that's so good. Because this we're talking about is an act of the will. It's a determination. She didn't feel it. She didn't feel like forgiving him. She probably felt like going and burning his house down or whatever. But she knew what Jesus called her to. She knew that path was there. So she took it, an act of the will. I ask you to forgive me. And so years go by and she was praying this and that was her prayer. Lord, I pray for my ex-husband and his wife, but I don't really mean it. And yet one day, way down the line, didn't happen overnight. One day she realized she prayed that prayer and it was there in her heart to mean it to believe that she'd been on that path for so long 
it actually became her own. That's forgiveness. That's what this is all about. We can't dictate to our hearts the emotional response. We can't say, you know, we can't tell, you know, uh, you know, uh, our heart like, like, you know, uh, like we're talking to Siri, you know, uh, you know, our heart, forgive that person. Well, uh, here's what I found on the web. <laughs> but we can determine to choose an action, right? We can't get the emotions to, to lead it, but we can determine to go in a certain direction, to choose an action. And eventually, oftentimes, the heart will follow. Forgiveness is an act of the will and a process we go through. And our ability to walk in it is going to have ups and downs, like anything for us as human beings. Times where we're victorious and secure in this, and then the next day we're wrestling with ghosts. That's just the way it is for a human being. But what's important is our determined, continuous path, a long obedience in the same direction as Eugene Peterson worded it. That's why he mentions seven times a day. And again, that's hyperbole. Don't, don't take that literally because you, seven times a day, there's not enough time for a person to even show that they've repented on something like that. But he's trying to make the point that we're not putting a cutoff on this. We're not keeping score on this. Uh, you know, there's going to be multiple. There may be required multiple expressions of forgiveness. That's why we're describing it as a willingness to forgive. And one more thing I want to qualify on this is that forgiveness and reconciliation are two different things as well. Now, obviously, reconciliation is a goal to have. And reconciliation, that's the heart of the gospel. God reconciling humanity to himself and and us reconciling with one another. But reconciliation is something that's going to move us towards a better future. Not something that's going to drop us back into old patterns, getting back to the way it used to be. That is not the goal of reconciliation. We clear on that? We can, you know, we can never fix the past. We can only move forward as different people, as healed people. But that healing, you know, is going to be something that's required from both parties. And so sometimes, because things haven't changed, immediate reconciliation isn't a good thing. It wouldn't be advisable at all. Say like someone's in an abusive relationship where there are no signs of the abuse stopping. There's, there's no repentance. There's nothing that's turning around, just ongoing apologies for that. Well, reconciliation would be unhealthy in that case, dangerous really for the abused person. So have these qualifications in mind when we're talking about this. That sort of thing has no bearing on forgiveness. Forgiveness occurs in our hearts and our attitudes towards someone else. And if that person hasn't repented, then certainly, you know, it wouldn't imply reconciliation in that. But that doesn't mean we can't forgive. We can forgive even if it doesn't end up in some sort of reconciled relationship or partnership. Are we following that? Are we, are we clear? If you've got questions, go ahead and throw your hand up saying, Rob, I don't get what you're saying. I'll start at the very beginning, so be careful. (laughs) So what is forgiveness then, Rob? There's all these qualifications. What is it? You know what? The simplest answer to that is it's letting go. It is first finding our wholeness and healing and stability in God's love for us. We have to believe that he loves us. You have to believe that he loves you. It's starting there and then letting go of our desire for retribution or revenge or payment, just trusting that God is going to do what's best. Forgiveness says to the person who's the offender, 
you don't owe me anything. I release this to my Savior. There's nothing that you have to do or to pay. God is my healer. He's the one who makes me whole. I release this. It has no bearing. And, and, and here's the big thing. Obviously, forgiveness is helpful for the person being forgiven, but forgiveness is about our healing as well. Because to, to let go is to find our own escape. It's to find our own freedom in all of this. Because as long as we hold on to the offense, the offense can still control us. But if we let that go to God, there's no strings on me. So in the, in the community like this of the church, Jesus is guiding us towards an intentional humility that is quick to extend godly forgiveness. Not an unhealthy forgiveness, a godly forgiveness that's secure and founded in God's love for us. All right, moving on. Verse 5. The apostle said uh, to the Lord, uh, yeah, show us how to increase our faith. <laughs> the Lord answered, if you had the faith, even as small as a mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, may you be uprooted and be planted in the sea and it would obey you. Mulberry trees were famous for having huge root systems. You don't move them easily. So like I said, forgiveness, it's a big word. I think the disciples are reacting to what they just heard from Jesus, you know, seven times a day. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You're going to have to give me some faith or something <laughs> if we're going to be able to do this t- together. But Jesus responds with this counter proposal. You don't need more faith. You just have to have some present. Just have a little faith. Just we don't we don't need a big faith. We need faith in a big God. In a God who does love us and care for us. In a God who has a plan and a purpose and is working through all things for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purposes. This is connected to forgiveness because, as I said, forgiveness is releasing offenses to God and trusting him to handle things. And it also means that we no longer have to try to control things, which is usually underlying the underlying motive for not letting go and not wanting to forgive because we still would like to control this and get a little something out of this person who, who did this. And so this, I believe, requires humility. And so we're going to practice humility when we trust that God is leading us through this life. Faith is where all things start in our journey with God. If whoever, must, whoever comes to God must first believe that he is. Believing that he is and then stepping out from there. And something that we determine, uh, uh, something that we determine and define as faith, uh, oftentimes in, in, especially, well, not so much lately, but there used to kind of even be like a, you know, a popular doctrinal position of, of health and wealth and all of that, uh, the idea of faith, and especially for me in the context context of the crazy church, was faith meant we were going to have the ability to get God to do spectacular things, like the imagery that Jesus uses of uprooting this tree here. But, and especially in this context, it's, it's different. Daryl Bach writes, uh, uh, recognize, faith is also recognizing what God is capable of doing while accepting what he delivers. Faith may mean having the strength to endure rejection. Or, or somebody's, you know, bad behavior towards us. It may mean trusting God for His wisdom. It may mean asking for deliverance or endurance 
uh, in, in a given situation. It may mean the faith to accept what it is that God's allowed to come into our lives, like Paul had to do with the thorn in the flesh that he ta- describes in 1 Corinthians 12. Most of all, I believe faith means never letting go of the commitment to go where God is guiding us and leading us. Never letting go of that commitment to follow him, regardless of what's happening. Because that's the thing that, you know, is so clear. God's not a genie. God's not a vending machine. Faith isn't like a little coin we drop into a coin slot and get a prize for. It is humble surrender to God's purposes in our lives, trusting that he's working all things together for our good because he loves us and we love him. Faith in humility acknowledges and seeks to rest in the belief that God's in charge of where we're going and what's happening. And therefore, we can forgive because God is is in control of these things. We release all things to him. Okay, finally, in this section, Jesus tells a parable, verse 7. When a servant comes in from plowing or taking care of sheep, does his master say, come in and eat with me? No. He says, prepare my meal, put on your apron and serve me while I eat. Then you can eat later. And does the master thank the servant for doing what he was told? Of course not. In the same way, okay, here's where it gets rough. In the same way, when you obey me, you should say, we are unworthy servants who have simply done our duty. And there's where we're going to stop on a high note today. (laughs) So service to God without strings attached. Basically, this is what he's describing here. And it could seem like a bleak picture for us as believers. I mean, God's this disinterested taskmaster and, you know, we're just self-effacing Eeyores. I'm just an unprofitable servant. (laughs) But again, remember, it's a parable. And a parable is not meant to connect one-to-one on every aspect, on everything. It's a parable. He's getting a point across. We've got plenty of places in Scripture, including the last you know, two chapters that we read where God makes it abundantly clear that he values us, that he cares for us, that he sees us, that he loves us. But that's not the point Jesus is making here. That's a point that we're supposed to have assumed already. We're supposed to start from the premise that we're loved, we're valued, he cares for us. But there's something else at stake in this too. There's our hearts in this matter. It's not really a question of God's love. It's a question of ours. And he's making it clear that even if we are as faithful as we can be in our service to God, it never puts God in our debt. None of us will ever be able to say, hey, you owe me, God. Don't forget what I did for you the other day. I spoke up about you kind of a little bit. (laughs) Honestly, the moment that we slide over into the expectation of reward for our service to God, We've lost the way of love and we've turned to the laws of reciprocity. And that is a territory none of us wants to go to because none of us gets out of there alive. Jesus is describing a place of intentional humility in service to God. And it's telling us that we're going to practice humility when we find satisfaction from our service to God. To serve the one we love, that's its own reward, really. Do you love someone? Is there someone in your life that you know that you love? Think about what it means and how you feel when, when you've done something that you know pleases that person 
that that person cares about. And it all sounds lovely. You know, oh, this is my service to God. It sounds, sounds so nice. And then we realize that our service to God is primarily expressed in our service to each other. And then we look around this place and say, wait a minute, wait a minute. <laughs> but again, as Paul says, humbly thinking of others before ourselves. So Darby Brown isn't here today. I don't know if you know Darby, but Darby's been, Darby and Mike have been part of this church forever. And uh, uh, Mike runs the soundboard back there, and they've been part of the board of elders here for a long time, for at least 20 years. And I think it may have been more than that. Darby ran the coffee counter here. You know, when you come in in the morning, you usually go over there, grab a cup of coffee. Well, somebody has to be here early to do that kind of stuff for 20 years. Darby was the one who was there every morning, or she'd make sure that somebody was there to fill in if there was a reason why she couldn't be there. But I mean, by and large, she was there. She was making coffee, you know, piles and piles of coffee for all of us coffee drinkers. And by the way, Darby doesn't drink coffee. Uh, (laughs) And I remember many times going back there to get a cup of coffee and just kind of being overwhelmed by her service in that. And I'd say things like, Darby, thank you for doing this. Thank you for doing this so faithfully for us over the years. And you know what she responded every single time that I said that? She would respond and say, thank you for letting me do this. And what it reveals then is the love that she had for you and I. But underlying that is, is her love for God. And this is the thing. that, that We serve the one that we love It's its own reward. That comes as its own reward. And that's really the point. Our service and obedience and commitment to God aren't chips that we use to negotiate some divine favor or bargain with God. They're meant to be expressions of gratitude and reciprocal love for this boundless love that is aimed at every single one of us. I mean, honestly, is as tough as passages like these are that we're looking at, it always resolves back at this. Why do we do this? Because we're loved. Because God loves you. Honestly, my, my kids love to joke about what they're going to put on my tombstone. And all kinds of crazy things come up at different times. But honestly, if there was anything I really wanted on my tombstone, it would be that. God loves you. Please believe it. Please believe it. It'll change everything. My daughter's back there going, no. <laughs> I know what I'm putting on your gravestone. <laughs> so let's take these lessons to heart. Let's, let's, let's take up the practice of intentional humility. Let's allow God to, to shape our hearts into careful and forgiving and faithful human beings that can represent something different on the cultural landscape, on the societal landscape. Maybe we can show the world what it's like when a human being lives out from the love that God gives. Maybe we can show what it's like on earth when it's like it is in heaven. Right on? All right, very cool. If you'll stand with him. (laughs) Father, we just thank you for your word. We just ask you, Lord Jesus, to to bless it deep into our hearts. We thank you for the many ways in which you guide us and lead us through this life. And Lord, encourage us to believe you and trust you. We don't, as you said, need a big faith. 
We just need to believe that you care and that you love us. Father, we thank you for for lavished ministries and all that they shared with us today. And we pray your blessing on that good work that represents that same love to those that could so easily be forgotten and unseen. So continue this good that you're doing here. Continue advancing your kingdom into this world. We thank you that we get to be a part of this. We thank you that we find such meaning and value in our own lives as we set out to serve such an amazing God. We pray these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.